Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses because I love entrepreneurship, I love business, I love people, and I love good freaking stories. Joining me today is somebody who I, I thought his business was much smaller than it is, but it's, even though it's new, it's huge. Here's the deal. You know how it feels really easy these days to sell online? You know, you set up a Shopify store, WooCommerce store, boom, you're in business. But in reality, if you think about the steps involved in doing it, it's still a process. I mean, if I were to say to you, go create a store right now, you go, oh, I, don't, I don't really want to do it because there are more steps involved in it than, say, creating a new Instagram account. There are more steps involved than, than say, telling somebody here, here's a picture of what I'm offering. Just Venmo me money. Well, joining me today is Ruben Flores Martinez. He is the founder of Cash Drop. They I don't want to say they want to make it easier for people to sell, but they already are doing it. And it's everything from your local restaurant down to someone who just wants to sell um, baked goods from their house to apparently kids are using this to sell slime. And I invited him here to find out how he built up his business and to see, well, really to just hear the story and see how he's making this work despite some challenges that I've seen competitors have. And we'll talk about that here. Uh, we could tell the whole story thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first will host your website, right? It's called HostGator. I'll tell you later why you should go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. And the second, if you're doing email marketing later on, I'll tell you why you should go to SendInBlue.com slash Mixergy. Ruben, good to have you here. Thank you so much for the time, Andrew. I'm excited to, to get to share the story with you. Ruben, you told our producer that one of the things that you notice is a problem that I see forever. I love food trucks. I'm in Austin now. Food truck culture is big here. I was in San Francisco. was big there. The pain in the ass of food truck is I have to wait in freaking line like an idiot for 10, 15 minutes, sometimes longer, for the, for the pleasure of getting to order something that will then take another 15 to 30 minutes to arrive. And I always wondered, why don't they just put a freaking QR code or a URL on the side of the truck and let me go and order online? And I've seen people try this in so many different ways, and they fail. I, I yeah. feel like you're making some progress, but what? let's talk about the problem. Why isn't it taking off already? Why are they making us all wait in line? I think, you know, the customer adoption thing is there. It's a merchant adoption problem, and it, it has to do with infrastructure. Like you said before, like, it seems like a really easy thing to adopt, but from the merchant standpoint, there's a big process in this. It's very complicated, right? And, you know, I when I, when I started the company, I kind of came across this stat that said that only about 8% of the world's commerce was online. And that kind of blew my mind, you know, like we live in this era of access and everything hyper convenient, but yet such a, such a small fraction of all of our payments are done online when we know it's a more convenient experience. But you know what? I do see them. They have the Square app now, thankfully, yeah. or some device that allows me to yeah. use my phone or watch to pay for it. They clearly have digitized to some degree, Yeah. but it's only the payment part. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, kind of the frontier that we're at, and like, kind of uh -huh. like extending it now where, you know, instead of having a cash register or a square reader that people have to travel to you to swipe their card, how do you t give merchants access to the billions of dollars of hardware that's already in their customer's pocket and you create a better experience, right? Like it just feels a lot better to walk into a Starbucks and instead of having to go wait in line and then went, go wait for your coffee, you can sit down, put your coat away, scan a QR code, and then your coffee shows up when it's ready. So I think that that's, you know, the issue that was, is I, I asked myself the same question, why yeah. are more merchants doing it? And I just realized it is very expensive and 
and difficult for them to do so. So I think that we just needed to create something that made it a lot more accessible for merchants worldwide to actually put those QR codes everywhere, to actually provide that experience that all the customers are begging to. They're already used to from the top, you know, top of the food chain, like the McDonald's of the world, the Starbucks of the world, right? Like they've invested tens of millions of dollars into their technology stacks. So in a way, we wanted to kind of democratize it to as many people, regardless of stage, right? Like I wanted to go to the smallest of the small, whether it's like uh, somebody Ruben, they just started. It, it seems like what you're, what you're saying to me though, Ruben is yeah. Andrew, it's not that they don't want to, it's just right. that it's too difficult for them to set it up. They're not seeing a line of people waiting for food and feeling this is great. They just feel like that stinks, but you know what stinks even more is I'm going to have to go online and figure out this whole internet thing and figure out how I could let people order online and not to get screwed by the company. Got it. And that's where you step in. How much revenue yep. are you guys doing right now? How much How much are you processing? We're processing tens of millions of dollars. Uh, we have some really exciting partnerships. A that we're, uh, A year, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're less than two years old. Uh, obviously, the pandemic really helped us uh, accelerate, mm -hmm. particularly in the hospitality industry. But I think to that point, you know, like it, it's a high tech problem with a very low tech solution. It just requires a human approach and really understanding that like us as like tech founders and tech people, we kind of live in this little bubble where we feel okay. like everything is instant and easy. But a lot of the, the bulk of business owners and, and real entrepreneurs, they're not necessarily tech savvy. They don't really have the time or they, to, the, the ability to, to really get these things. They're just worrying about selling the next taco to make sure they put food on the table for their family, right? Like right. That's, that's where I think that there's a giant disconnect between the tech industry and the people that we're here to serve. And I think that that's, what, that's really was the biggest motivator of, 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 of the cash drop brand. It's like, you know, what if I put myself out of business because my entire software career getting started was charging people to build them websites and Shopify stores? That's what you I were doing before. That's what I was doing for before. I call myself part of the Shopify mafia, right? It is it isn't cheap, and you know that you're gonna, you know, eventually they're gonna come back to you. You're gonna charge them one hundred and twenty dollars an hour for support because they don't know how to change their inventory or add another thing that, frankly, ah. to me, takes two seconds. So I think that that creates this aura of mistrust, and it's just it just leads people to not adopt these things because they feel like, well. It's a lot more painful for my customer to have to go wait in line, but I, I just really have no better, right? So I think that we really need to do better as technology providers to be able to understand those human factors that will enable people to feel that they can do it, to make people feel that they can afford it, right? And that's when you start really seeing this interesting uplift, you know, of people all kind, you know, in all kinds of stages using it. Like you said, we have people that are selling tacos out their garage window because their mom has a really great birria, you know, uh, a recipe all the way to food trucks, to food halls, to hotels. Now we're doing 25,000 people's uh, uh, events. Now we're moving on to stadiums. And it's really the same technology, right? Like this idea that you should just be able to order from your phone when you're sitting in your couch and you saw a cool Instagram photo. Like it's just the future everybody wants. But what are we doing to make sure that every single merchant out there truly has the ability to just launch that in just a few minutes without feeling that's too okay. difficult or And expensive. that's your thing. You want to make it so easy they could create the store from their phone, not a desktop, not need a developer to come in and help out. And that's that's what you were doing. You said you were developing Shopify stores on the side. And the reason you were doing it is because you had a startup called Sugar, I think it was. Yep. And it it wasn't making enough money. And so on the side, you were doing contract That's work. That's how I paid what the bills. Exactly. Exactly. So I was, I was, uh, sugar was, it was basically a data company. So the idea was, 
we wanted to make it really easy to collect a lot of preferential and psychographic data about, you know, customers and help them make decisions faster. I don't know why the fuck we started with restaurants, but the idea was like, hey, you're in New York City. You've never been. There's this little algorithm that is like Tinder. It'll ask you a few bunch of questions and then it learns your preferences. So when you're in the middle of Manhattan, you've never been there and you're fighting with your wife where to go to dinner. The thing would just say, hey, here's your top three matches. Don't yep. even think about it. Just this is where you go. So that was the idea. Obviously, pursuing the data route made it really incredibly difficult for fundraising. There was no revenue coming in. So I needed to get inventive of how to pay the bills. And that's, you know, most of my career as an engineer has always really been about helping somebody start advertising something to sell or selling something. And that was like the the, the, the common thread for me. And I kind of had this epiphany where we said, look, maybe the first 20 years of the internet was all about connecting with each other. But the next 20 years of the internet is now that we're hyper-connected, it's about selling shit to one another, right? Like, I feel like that's what everybody <laughs> wants to do now because we live in this era of hustle, this era of entrepreneurship. Everybody's got a million-dollar idea in their head. Everybody. So now it's just how do you just make it so effortless for them to try? Maybe you have a nine-to-five, but you have this random thing that you just feel could be a side hustle, but then all of a sudden you don't want to go through the time of creating the website or the Shopify store, or paying $30 a month for this, $30 a month for that. And you just want to see if in the weekends, your homies from Instagram would just buy something, right? Like that, that's the, that's the things that we're leaning into and we're seeing okay. a lot of success from it. Okay. So talk to me a little bit more about sugar. I'm fascinated by companies that don't work. I feel like there's still enough yeah. to learn from those and we're not Absolutely. mining that information. And so your idea was Andrew wants to go to dinner with his wife. Instead of yeah. giving him Yelp and forcing him to read a bunch of reviews, we're going to give him three options. He could pick one of the three and move on. And you're going to build those three options for me based on what? What's the big data issue that you had? Yeah, so I was obsessed with the Myers-Briggs uh, framework uh, <laughs> uh -huh. years ago, right? And then, you know, the name Sugar came from this kind of like parallel to the Myers-Briggs that I kind of told myself, like, you know, yes, you we may know your preferences, but I feel like choosing a restaurant or choosing a place that you really vibe with. That's the key word, vibe, mood. There's a lot of intangibles besides just the food that I think matter when you make decisions. So I, I went into find this parallel between personality traits and things that are psychographic in nature, along with your raw preferences, to try to match it with restaurants that provide the right ambience, the right setting, yeah. the right people go to there, right? So it was a little bit more of a deeper uh, connection. So the, the interface when you started was just a bunch of little cards, kind of like Tinder. But, but instead of asking you about people, it would say, hey, would you rather go to a, a steak dinner or would you rather eat a cup of noodles, right? Like, would you rather eat, you know, this or that, this or this? So it would yeah. collect a bunch of data. And, you know, I've reverse engineered the Myers-Briggs framework, you know, from like a long format 30-minute test to a swipe test that was starting with 15 swipes. Then you move up to 50 and it had about 98% accuracy and we can predict your Myers-Briggs personality type. And that's where the sugar uh, game was. Like the sugar was about, we're all little gummy bears and all the little gummy bears have different colors. And depending on your preferences, you kind of belong to this little family of gummy bears. So like you're a red gummy bear, you're a blue gummy bear, you're, a, you know, whatever. And that kind of told us about like, these are people that kind of share common traits with you like the blue sugar bears now that we know what type of preferences and psychographic triggers you guys have then depending on where you start going where you start going and spending money you can kind of create a lot of really interesting patterns to feed it back into the loop to make recommendations better faster more effective for those people that share things with you at least that was the vision 
but uh, um, you know, we weren't necessarily chasing the money. Why didn't that's, it work? Again, it's just, uh, the fundraising. Uh, I mean, and there's a lot I could speak about the subject, but I mean, obviously, from the thirty thousand foot view, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of clear idea on the monetization. The idea was to kind of like become the next generation Nielsen to some degree and start using that data and selling it to larger providers and product manufacturers and distributors and so on. Uh, but I just kind of recorded a really long undertaking. And I mean, I raised $50,000 of angel money. So that was, that was, you made it a really steep hill. And I mean, the the rest, I'm not going to like, cause I saw this even with cash up, just the good old amount of good old racism. I mean, like me being a Latino founder in the tech industry, when less than 1% of the venture dollars go to black Latino founders, you know, you don't really realize that till after the fact of how much more difficult it is that you have to prove yourself to kind of get How do you know that it's racism? It's, how do you know that it isn't? Because at, it, a lot of the things in America suffer from this. I mean, there's these are things that are deeply rooted in the power structures, particularly when you're talking about capital, particularly when you're talking about access, right? That, that, you know, you see this time and time again, and I can't really feel every day I just walk around. I just feel so fucking blessed to be able to be the one to break through. But if for every Ruben, there's a hundred others that I know that just go overlooked How all can the you time. Tell? Could you tell when people were talking to you? Was there something else? You can't tell in the moment, mm-hmm. right? And you try so fucking hard to not be that guy, right? Like you, you, you just don't want to be the token Mexican. You don't want to be the, the the one guy out of the room, right? So you don't really think about it in the moment. But when you look back, you kind of realize, like, you know, and this happens to me. Like when I started tra- uh, racing capital for cash drop, right? Um, I started bootstrapping, right? Uh, I had no money. I didn't know how I was gonna, you know, make rent in the month. You know, when sugar died, and then I was like, I, those moments is where I just keep digging dip- deeper. I'm like, I'm already yep. in for the hole. I'm just gonna yep. keep going until I hit China, right? So, you know, I started doing that. I built the MVP. We got a bunch of, um, you know, little food trucks that were making us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in transactions, you know, every month. So it's like, it's an interesting start. Uh-huh. I know, okay, if a revenue model is $5 convenience fee per every dollar of GMV, I need this many to pay a rent, right? So I just kind of got to get myself to this boom, boom, boom. Once I got to that point relatively fast, I mean, in a matter of weeks, I was like, I think this could be something. I tried for, with sugar for years and years and years. You know, we didn't really get any amount of traction that we have here in weeks and something that I literally just built in my in my apartment over the last month, just like coding 24-7. And I was like, I think it's time to go back to the circuit and try to, you know, get some capital to take this to the next level. And when I started knocking on doors, like nobody – it's like it's like people didn't even take the time to listen to what I had to say. I, you know, it went to Milwaukee, it went to Chicago. I started asking people – and and it, it, it was just this this I don't even know how to explain it. Isn't it Chicago and Milwaukee too? Like when you tell what me I that? went to Chicago and Milwaukee, I think to do what to raise money, it's fundraise. I mean, like all of the investors. Why did you go I, to San Francisco? Know, well, that's where I started. Right, I'm here in the Midwest. I started here, and you know. I, I got connected to some people in San Francisco. I got connected to some, you know, uh, uh, to some accelerator programs, to some investor funds and stuff like that. And I just kept hitting brick walls and I didn't understand why, right? Like I had traction, I had revenue. There was a lot of yeah. promise. We were growing really fast. It just didn't make fucking sense. Why? You know, and, and here I'm, I'm trying to ask for $150,000, $200,000. 
And um, I just got very lucky on LinkedIn. I met a guy that had a really long network next to you know, He connects me with uh, Jared from Harlem, uh, Harlem Capital in New York. And then he gives me a term sheet within two days of meeting me. They connect me with Eric Paley, you know, at Founder Collective. Like they gave me a term sheet in 24 hours. I got connected with Siam Bannister. She gave me a term sheet in two hours, right? Like it just, I, I did find the tribe and then everything kind of caught on fire from there. But like, again, looking back, it's just that there's this really gigantic bias problem in the industry where a lot of founders of color have to work twice as hard to get half as far. They have to have companies that have far more traction. They have more proof points, you know, relative to the stage they're at because we just don't look good on paper, right? I'm a, I'm a Mexican college dropout. I was undocumented all my life. I taught myself how to code on YouTube because I couldn't go to university. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of bias problems there, but you know, it is what it is. Once you kind of break through, you break through and you shine brighter. I, I am very, I feel very, very fortunate, but getting here was not, was not easy. And I'm definitely the exception. I just have so many peers that share similar stories to mine that just don't have the opportunities that I was given. So that's something that I'm very vocal about. You were born in Guadalajara, Mexico? I was born in Guadalajara, Mexico. Yes. And you, you told our producer that you would go selling, what was it that your parents had you sell? Ices? Yeah. So, so <laughs> that's, that's cool. Uh, so there's this, 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 uh, little desserts in Mexico called bolis, right? And it's like, what you know, that? agua fresca, you know, like horchata, Jamaica, like uh, Mexicans are very, uh, uh um, uh, popular with those. They're like, just you know, watch what you're moving on your desk. You've got, a, I love the energy that you have. Yeah, um, but just watch what you're doing on your desk, uh, because it comes across oh, on the mic. Yeah, oh, I, you, you seem to move so much. I'm watching you, and I love that you've got this like can't sit still energy. I just want you to be aware yeah. of the microphone as you're doing it. Okay, so, yeah, I, so, I, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my arms. Uh, so yeah, bolis are these these sweet treats basically. So okay. so you grab, you know, uh, it's called agua fresca, like horchata, and then you put them in these mm -hmm. little baggies and you freeze them. Something like okay. a popsicle, but it's like in a tight bag, so you eat it by like literally just biting into the bag. Okay. And I started a little business when I was about 12 years old, uh, 11 years old. Um, you know, outside of my doorstep in Guadalajara, every Saturday, there was a traveling flea market. So, you know, you had sellers from all over the city. They would literally come build these makeshift tents or put towels on the floor. And that was all of the infrastructure they needed to run their business. And it was every Saturday for over 100, for over 100 years. So, like, every single Saturday, I would literally open up my my door and there was just this gigantic labyrinth of commerce in front of me. And, you know, I grew up, I grew up poor. Um, my parents were highly educated chemical engineers, but they had no opportunities. So, because? you know, my dad was, huh? Why? That's just how third world countries are, man. Like, mm. you know, like you have very advanced degrees. I spent six years in college, did a thesis and the, there's just the market so hyper competitive and the opportunities are so, so, so few. And, you know, I grew up seeing my dad just hustle, you know, out of necessity, right? Like whatever he had to do to put food on the table, I never went, you know, I never went to sleep hungry. And that was one of my biggest inspirations. So I've always had those ideas of like businesses and hustles and how to make money, how to get ahead. Meanwhile, though, with, there were periods yeah. of your life when you were the breadwinner for the family. Yeah. So when I started that business... You know, I started as my goal was to buy the PlayStation 2 because there was no fucking way my parents will ever be able to afford it. And I, you know, I went through a gamer phase. I was 12 years old. So I needed to find a way of like, how do you buy something that's made literally only for American kids? You only see on TV, but I need to have it. Right. 
So I started having my mom make me these freeze pops and I just had this little woven basket and I, every Saturday I would just go hustle. I knew I had a lot of charisma and a lot of energy. So I would just go and just tell people stories and get them to buy my little freeze pops. And I actually had a lot of success. And then I started doing it every day. You know, I worked in a very industrious neighborhood. So there was a lot of businesses around me, you know, throughout the week, people that made, you know, there's a lot of like denim factories and tire shops and leather tanners and shoemakers and recycler businesses literally within two blocks of my my neighborhood so everybody has a home uh, a home business so i would start selling every single day and then the empire grew and then you know um yeah i mean i was 13 years old and that was our sole income uh, for a family of five and i didn't know that at the time you know only till years later i realized that but um there was just a lot of internal friction, obviously, from my parents, like not having opportunities. They're literally, you know, surviving of what their 12-year-old kid is selling. Did they the resent streets. you for being the person they, who was doing – did you resent it? I don't think it? they resented me. I think they resented themselves. And I, I, there was this moment that I'll never forget. I think it's one of the most difficult, like, childhood memories that I have where one day I just didn't want to go sell. And my parents were very frustrated. I think there was, like, bills to pay in the next few days. And they were very, very tight for money. And I refused to go sell. My parents were like literally very mad with me, almost crying. And they literally just locked me in the door and then they went to go. And that was like a really, really fucking difficult moment in my life. And a few months later, my dad left. So he he went from Guadalajara to Milwaukee, you know, for a whole year to work. So I didn't see my dad for over a year. He just went, you know, with one of his brothers that lived there to work just shitty jobs, just to, to make enough money to be able to come back and bring us with him. But I didn't see my dad for a whole year, you know, a few weeks after that. So it, I don't think he resented me. I think he resented himself in the situation. And I feel like that was, that was the moment where he just knew that there was this sacrifice needed to be done in order to provide me and my siblings with more opportunities. And that's just it. Like nobody's going to ever wake up and say, I'm going to fucking leave everything behind, go work as an immigrant 3,000 miles away and perhaps never see my family again. Like nobody will ever want that. It's something that you're forced to do. Uh, and it's something that I, I wear very proudly in my sleep, but also I use it as a reference point to really understand, you know, who I am but also who I'm here to serve, right? Like the vast majority of entrepreneurs and food truck owners and hustlers are those people. They share similar stories. And I want to be able to translate the story of tech and giant numbers and generational wealth and, and, and everything we have access to because there's a lot of resources in the world. I want to be able to translate that to these people that have the work ethic, that they're manufacturing everything you, 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 you own, but they don't have any ownership. They don't have any access to tools that can really take them to the next level. And that's honestly what I feel my purpose in life is. That's what I want to do with Cash Up, And we do it every day by literally making it easy for people to turn their dreams into a reality. All right, let me take a moment. I'm going to tell people about my uh, first sponsor. It's Send in Blue. Ruben, I, I don't think you guys do email marketing on your platform, do you? No. Not yet. Not yet. I saw the smile on your face. It's coming. And here's why it's so important. You want, as a business, to have a direct relationship with your customers. So when it's time for you to offer something for sale or, frankly, even to just get feedback and see what it is that they need or what you're not doing right or what you can improve – Email is the way to do it because it gives you that bi-directional communication with your customers, allows you to come back to them later on when you have something new to offer. Every business should have an email list. If you don't have one yet, you have lots of options. So why should you use Send in Blue? And here's the beauty of Send in Blue. 
They give you all the marketing automation that you need. So if somebody keeps clicking on links that tells you that they're interested in one topic, you don't sell them something else, but you can follow up with the thing that they seem more, most interested in. If they bought something, you don't try to sell it to them again unless it's obviously consumable, but you can say thank you for buying and then try to offer them something else. All that intelligence is built in and send in blue, super easy to use, but here's what else they have that you won't realize until much later on. A price that doesn't get jacked up. A lot of email marketing companies give you free to get started, easy to get started, and then they jack up the price. Meanwhile, by then you're kind of stuck and they know they got you. Send in Blue doesn't do it. And if you use my URL, they'll give you an even lower price to get started and make it super easy for you to stay a customer. Send in Blue.com slash Mixergy. Send in Blue.com slash Mixergy. You'll get a great low price. Go check them out and I think you'll you'll be happy with them. And by the way, if you're not, Andrew at Mixergy.com. That's my email address. I always want to know good, bad, ugly, just random about all of my sponsors. I've booted sponsors before. People didn't love them. I only keep sponsors that you out there in the audience tell me you love and uh, just keep giving me feedback on it. All right, Ruben, I see the problem that you saw. As a developer, the first version you told our producer you wanted to not be as precious about it as you were with sugar. You wanted to create faster. What did that first version look like? And then we'll get into how you got it into customers' hands. Yeah, so with Sugar, I was really, really obsessed about design. Everything needed to look pixel perfect. Everything needed to be perfection. And, um, you know, when I killed Sugar and I started Castrap, I just told myself, like, I needed a complete 180. Like, I'm going to do the complete opposite of what I've done for the last three and a half years, and I will never look back. First thing was, with Sugar, I chased the data. It was all about data and no money. I'm going to do the complete opposite. I'm just going to only care about money. I want to become the inception of money, right? Uh, and the thing also up here with design, I'm going to do the complete opposite. I'm just going to focus on just the utility, not how it looks. I just want it to be as simple as possible, bare bones as possible. So I chose, you know, like everything, everything with the design of Cash Shop is very stock. We use the stock colors of the phone, like the blue that we chose is the stock iPhone blue, the stock font, the stock shapes. So my goal was to make it using the bare bones uh, elements and just something that we just put out there just really fast. So I put the MVP in about three weeks. Um, I already had a lot of experience behind the scenes with a lot of payment, you know, process like Stripe and a lot of those things from, from things that I had been working on, you know, whether it was with sugar or, or like just just side gigs over the years. So it just made it fairly easy for me to get started. Uh, but I just wanted to focus on the utility, make the product as bare bones. But I think in hindsight, it's a great decision. But again, because the people that we serve are not tech savvy for the, for the most part, right? They need something extremely clean. They don't care about the whales and whistles. They don't care about what it looks like. They care about the utility of what the product achieves. And I think that going into that direction was a great uh, uh, um, way for us to really just declutter and remove all the unnecessary shit that people don't care about. Okay, and so you launched it with the idea that people were going to not even need a Stripe account, right? You had your own Stripe account for processing credit cards. You were just going to using the account that you had. Well, actually, how did you do payment? You were Stripe, yeah. So, yeah, we wanted to make it as frictionless as possible. Um, I mean, doesn't Stripe have a, they have a plan that allows you to create is it sub accounts? I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't understand it. Yeah, you can uh, you can create you can create sub accounts now. Don't do the first one. You'll get an IRS bill, and then you're gonna have to you know fight it out with the IRS about reporting income, and, and it's it's a giant fucking tax mess. To do the the dime ta- <laughs> you did the tax mess. 
Well, the thing is, when you when you when you become the processing account, it rates lists a lot of problems because you know the IRS is going to report the income as if it was yours, but when it was the merchant, so it's just, right, it's just an accounting problem. But is so, that yes, what you did? Migrated. It, for a very short time. Got it. Okay. So was, it was I basically was, like oh, yeah. I have my own Mixergy Stripe account. Yeah. You yeah. had your own Stripe account and you yeah, use it yeah. for – got it. Okay. And then Stripe has – understands that there are a lot of customers like you who also are are basically empowering others. And I right. forget what that program is called and that's what you signed Stripe up for. Stripe Connect. Yeah. So Stripe, Stripe Connect, Connect uh, enables you to create uh, individual siloed merchant accounts yep. that you can connect to transfer money with. Uh, so that's the preferred method, uh, obviously. But yeah, you know, still our, our idea was, you know, let's get people from zero to money in the bank in 15 minutes. That's the, yeah. always been the vision, right? Like we want to make it super fast. And so I think, you know, when we started the product, that was the first thing that we wanted to achieve. Now, the second thing that we wanted to achieve, it was this key insight that I had about like, I think for e-commerce to really get to where it needs to over the next 10 years, we have to understand about what's the biggest thing holding it back. Why is it that we have things like Shopify and Square, $200 billion companies, each of them, right? Yet still only 10% of the world's commerce is digitized. I feel like there was this, there was this thing that wasn't translating. And when I spoke to a lot of small business owners, I kind of came to realize that it wasn't a tech problem. It was an economic problem. A lot of people felt it was expensive or they couldn't afford it. They just, there was this entire sense of, of, of money, money, money. So I said, look, we're making it really easy for you to get started and we're just not going to charge you anything, right? Like it's going to be 100% free. There's no commissions. There's no monthly fees. But every single time that you sell something, I'm going to add a tiny convenience to the customer, right? So then the more money you make, the money, more money I make. I'm just going to focus on the merchant, right? And make sure that I can empower you to sell as fast as possible and as much as possible. And that at the time was a little like head turner for some people in the industry to feel like charging the consumer was the way to go. But honestly, it was the secret sauce for us to just explode overnight. And I really you know, to this day believe that the biggest disruption that we're really introducing is not so much about the product and what it can do, but it's really about rethinking the fundamental economic model of digital commerce. And so, I think that that's, that's going to be the biggest thing for us. It still so is. So when I look at this um, deep dish key lime pie slice for $7.50, you've got a service fee of $1.13. That's your fee? That's where you it's make a your 5%, money. It's a 5% convenience fee. Yeah. Okay. And so then there's service fee. And then in addition, I see fees and taxes. What's fees and taxes? Yeah. So it like for, I think that you're looking at a um, two-third, I believe. They're, uh, within the yeah. group that they have, they, they, you can add – the group itself can add specific service charges if they do. You know, like there's, there's restaurants or like concepts like hotels that will add a 20% service charge you know, to the total. So that's what you're seeing there for fees and taxes for us is like, you know, depending on the, uh, the tax rate in Florida is about 7%. Uh, and then the 5% convenience fee. So for us, we charge 5% convenience fee, uh, from the total to the customer. Got it. All right. So what you're saying is you add your fee on top that took away some of the fear that they had that you were somehow going to make money from, from them every month and that they were going to have this big bill that they're stuck with forever. Got it. All right. And so I see the first version. When you went out and got your first customer, who was the first customer? 
a food truck, right? So our first talker, customer was a food truck in Milwaukee, yep. Wisconsin called Mazorca. So okay. I was acquaintances with the, with the owner. And then, you know, um, he launched it. He was very bullish on it and he actually became my first investor. Jesus, he, he gave me $10,000 um, and he became our first client and first investor. So here's what I want to know. You went yeah. to him and you said, this is my pitch. He said, look at all these people waiting in line for 20 minutes to get a taco. That They're miserable, which by the way, is so freaking true. I can help you with this. Instead of waiting in line, all they have to do is pay with this QR code and order and sit down. I get that. I see why he would be interested. Now, did you say to him, create an account and now like list all your menu items on it? Or did you do the service for him in the beginning? Uh, no, he did it himself. You said to him, here's the account, go set it up and do it. And you watched him type in all of his different taco options. You watched him add his, uh, actually, you didn't have to do a, uh, his bank information at the time, right? The the, the benefit is that the Mazorca's menu is about 10 items long. So yes, okay. I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily like something, a really big undertaking. But yeah, I mean, part of the vision was like, in order for this to really be gigantic, it needs to be self-serve, right? And so so that from the part beginning, the he had to use it. Yeah, exactly. Part of the fine tuning on on the app's creation was for me to be able to understand, to make it fast and easy enough for them to actually do it themselves. And that's that's been something that I'm very obsessed about always. So how people use the product. So yeah, I mean th th that was the initial test. Like here you go, download the app, set it up. If you have any questions, I'm here. I'm here for you. But the goal is for this for tens of millions of people worldwide to do it themselves. I can't scale that. Okay. I need to figure out how to, for you to do it. All right. So Ruben, he sets it up. He gets a QR code. First of all, he's got to print the freaking QR code. That's a pain in the ass. Nobody's got a printer. Well, the, the thing is, he didn't start with a QR code. He started with a link. The, it's all about on the, the link. side of his truck. On it, no, 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 no. The, the 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 bread and butter use case for us, none new with QR codes. The bread and butter for us is when you create your cash shop shop. You get a link, cashrap.biz mm -hmm. forward slash whatever. Cashrap isn't a marketplace. So we don't have a website where you go and you browse for shit around you. We wanted to leverage the distribution inherently already within social media profiles. My sort has about 5,000 followers. They're very devoted. So I was like, look, people are already – the future of on-premise commerce begins before they even set foot in your business. It begins with so wait, He didn't promote Instagram. it. It wasn't people seeing his truck and waiting in line who typed in the URL. You're yes, saying it's because it was because, that. But the user flow began like this. The people that were waiting in line 30 minutes ago were at home. They're thinking, maybe I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? They come across somewhere at Masorca or they thought about him. Like, oh, I'm going to go to Masorca to order. But the only way for you to consume Masorca products is to go to the truck, wait in line, pay for your shit, wait for your yes. taco, and then boom, boom, boom. So I was like, look, the future of this is once they you hook them with a good post on Instagram and you get the 500, 600 likes. Why don't you just say, go to the link in my bio and you can order. So by the time that you get to the truck, your shit's already waiting for you. Ah. That was the use case. It wasn't about QR codes. It's about preventing people that by the time that they were home, they could go to his Instagram profile link in bio, tap it, place their order. And then by the time they got to the truck, their tacos were already waiting. Got it. That was, was the, were the majority of people doing that? Buying off of Still his this, social? 
still to, still this, to day. this day. Still to okay. this day. The QR code is just to prevent overflow, but it's to train people that next time they should buy the if you have to scan a QR code on location, you're already too late. But it's a great opportunity to then say, look, the next time you can find us on Instagram or on TikTok on this and this, click the link in our bio. Order at home, get a text when it's ready, and then you get and come pick up your shit. Got now it. you don't have to wait and, and waste time. Okay, so he does it. Then I'm yep. assuming you go out to other food trucks and you say to them, this is working. But I've got to tell you, Ruben, most food trucks do not have a great Instagram account. I disagree. But the thing is this, right? Like most small business owners have some sort of following, right? I'm not talking, not all of them have 10,000 followers. Not a lot of them have 5,000 followers. Some of them have 500. But what you have to understand is this. A, a successful small business at the scale of these food trucks probably needs about 50 to 80 covers a day to be successful. Okay. Right? So they need about a, a certain amount of GMV to hit per day to kind of cover the bills for the profit margin so they can put food on the table. That's what these people are thinking about. So yep. when you really do the math like that, if you really need 50, 50 covers to be successful, cover the bills, and you have 500 Instagram followers, your job in is to talk to those 500 people to try to convert 10% of them, right? And, you know, this is the beauty of the world that we live in because you can create distribution relatively easy. So, yes, not everybody has a great social media presence, but for the most part, every single small business owner that's on Instagram can at least get a hold of enough people and talk to enough people to be able to create a steady flow. And, you know, a lot of our most consistent, more successful small food trucks don't have a thousand followers, yet they do the majority of their traffic on social media. And I think that that's a really key insight that, that we always try to advocate and show small business owners because that's the, the customer acquisition mechanisms that are already inherent with your social media profiles is game changer. I mean, it's, it's a really powerful position. Now you just have to make it really easy for them to transact and give you their money before they can go to the 10,000 other competitors you have. But I think that that's how you build really easy loyalty from a small scale perspective. And, you know, it only amplifies the more followers you have, obviously, but uh, uh, it's not that hard to get started in it, and you don't need that many people to create a successful business. I guess I thought that most food trucks are something that people go to when they're in the area. So they go to, the, they go to an area, they like the food truck, they wait in line, they order. You're saying that You're saying that people will find a truck online, they'll follow them, they'll be connected to them, and then later on they'll decide that they want to uh, go and order. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had no idea. All right. So then do you go and get other food trucks or do you start to, well, actually today is the majority of your business food trucks or is it Instagrammers and other social media people who are selling? I think about 60%, 55, 60% is hospitality, right? Not just food trucks. Like I said, we service food trucks, food trucks restaurants. restaurants, food halls, hotels, I would have a, you know, uh, and then we have a really large channel partnership coming with one of the largest payment processes in the world. So they're putting cash up in the hands of 2,500 salespeople over the country to convert a lot of their brick and mortar hospitality venues. So we're very excited about it. So yeah, it's about 55% spread. And I, what's interesting, what started happening is obviously the restaurants started adopting it relatively quickly because of the pandemic, right? All of a sudden, 
you know, there was complete cutoff to brick and mortar traffic and everybody was scrambling for a solution. So restaurants was like the, the, the very, very clear uh, uh, value proposition. So, you know, yes, we started getting a few more food trucks, but then we started getting grab and go restaurants. And the next thing you know, I'm going off to Florida to launch a 15 venue food hall in West Palm Beach. Uh, you know, and, and to this day, they're one of our largest merchants. We do 100% of uh, their entire uh, um, um, payments buying. So they're doing, you know, 10 million a year in sales plus, and we process every single dollar that goes through that entire foothold. We process it. We're their point of sale. So what's interesting here is cash trap is a very simple thing to launch and adopt, right? It can be, again, like you said, 13 year old kids in California, they launch their side hustle selling slime with their moms or selling Pokemon cards. But, you know, as easy as it is to launch, the back end of Cashrap is very sophisticated, very robust, that I can actually take your business from very small to very large. So we, you know, that I mean, we connect with a lot of, you know, credit card processing hardware. You can do self-checkout kiosks. You can do staff-facing points of sale. You can sell with QR codes and links on Instagram. So it's the apps, the platform is very modular to adapt for a very wide gamut of use cases for commerce. And I feel like as as the restaurant industry started adopting us, it's just organically led to a lot of people on in different industry asking, oh, shit, can I use it to sell this? Can I use it to sell uh, my tickets? Can I use it for my church? Can I use it for this? And then it just kind of went from there. Okay, Ruben, I want to come back in a moment and ask you how you expanded yeah. to all those places. But first, sure. I should say my second sponsor is HostGator. Anyone who needs a website should go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. When you do, you're going to get hosting that just works. It's easy. And It'll scale. We're actually talking to them about how they should be promoting their more robust services because HostGator has it. Most people don't know it. But when you're getting started, inexpensive and just works is a great way to do it. So go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. You'll get all of that and an even lower price when you use my URL. HostGator.com slash Mixergy. So Ruben, what was your process for going out and getting more customers, more people to use CashDrop? Uh, it was Instagram. So... Masorca, right, puts that link in their bio and it says, hey, you can tap this link in our social media uh, on Instagram profile and then place an order. Right. Yep. So that was that was the first thing that it kind of helped us to kind of point the finger to. And then from there, it was just a lot of DMs, you know, you personally um, sitting down and DMing. Yeah. And what ended up happening is what was that? Did, did you get penalized by by Instagram for DMing so much? You just have to know, you, you have to know the system a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a limit on DMs you can send. So you kind of have to work around the kinks of Instagram marketing. But, um, the, you know, as of, as of three months ago, the vast majority of our traffic was still inbound word of mouth just through social media. What happens is Masorca adopts the system. People love it, right? Because it's easier, right? It's the thing customers have been waiting for for months anyway. Right. And then their peers and competitors see it and they start asking themselves, what, what the fuck is this cash drop thing? Oh, it's free. Oh, I can set it up myself. Mm. Boom. Right. And that's where it's key for the self-serve loop to be to be very, very intact. Right. Like uh, and that's what ended up happening. Like it, it didn't just happen in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Masorca is connected to small businesses all over the country. So you start seeing this really wow. random uptick of like next thing you know, we had a taco shop. In, in Salt Lake City called Los Tapatios because they're like third cousins with Jesus here in Milwaukee and they also own a taco uh. truck. So they downloaded it and set it up. And then in Florida and in Arizona and all of a sudden like people. So we, 
cash app doesn't necessarily have digital density. We have what's called digital. We call uh, um, we don't have physical density. We call it digital density, which a lot of our merchants are like one or two degrees of separation from each other on social media. So it's not like we have entire neighborhoods of merchants where everybody uses cash app. It's digital communities that follow each other. They use right, cash app. I still don't get though how it. they would send you. So I, I'm on their website right now. I yeah, see yeah. cash drop right – I mean, sorry, I'm on their Instagram. I see cash drop yeah. right there in the one link that they have in the bio. Yeah. They post maybe five times a year to 4,400 people. Yeah, yeah, but – How does it – I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Stories, I'm just saying I don't man, understand sto- it. Yeah, stories, how does it work? Sto- stories are ephemeral, right? So most people will post in their story than they will on their feed because oh. it goes away after 24 hours. And now you can do swipe ups or you can do you know links or you just say link in bio – and that's 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 what happens. So the story format is really cool because you can talk about daily specials or things happening every single day and they go away, whereas your feed is the more interesting permanent stuff. So that's how you're sending and creating these communication okay. mechanisms with customers. Okay, all right. And that's not what I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing there is more like their website than their their stories feature. Okay. And so that becomes your thing. And then DMing is one way that you do outward. I see the inbound. People are spotting you on uh on on sites like theirs and businesses like theirs. What else do you do to be more proactive? What's your sales outreach like today? Yeah, so uh we've we've taken a really interesting path to that. So um we we've done a lot of um, um, inroads with a, with a small scale regional influencer community, so we have a really thriving um, um, partner program. So the idea was, and you have you know you have influencers that have like ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand followers that are like very very dialed in a particular community. You know, say we have for example, Eat Migos in in uh, uh, San Antonio, like trusted figures that a lot of small businesses know them like he's a foodie so he's always going down eating the best food in san antonio so we wanted to create a partnership program to tap into people like like uh, chris like Edmigos, to be able to help them kind of broker and spread the word about cash up and help us close accounts so almost like a decentralized way of selling through somebody that's already very trusted in the community. And given that our profit margin, you know, it gives us a lot of luxury because our, you know, our 5% straight margin, uh, we've been able to create a lot of really interesting, very uh, symbiotic relationships with people like Chris, where they go and they they tell people about Cash Up. They help them close, they help them launch their accounts, they help promote them and kind of kickstart the business. So that's something that we've done, you know, extremely well that we're scaling. Uh, also, you know, we've, we like I said, uh, we've been working a lot of channel partnerships. So we figured out that we kind of, you know, uh, uh, solved this very, strong existential pain pain points for a lot of the uh, older payment processor incumbents in the space where a lot of their merchants were you know jumping ship to toast and square because and they're vertically integrated so we have some channel partnerships with some of the largest payment processors in the in the in the in the world where uh, again, they're after the processing value volume kind of like stripe but we're the end you know um, the end uh, uh, interface that, that 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 connects the consumers with the merchants. What's so, one of these channel partners like, that you're working with that's referring customers to you? Yeah, so right now we're working with Global Payments, um, uh, starting with one of their subsidiaries, Heartland Payments. Uh, okay. The other one is under NDA, so I can't discuss it, but they're just as big. Uh, so again, 
that's been really helpful for us. Um, we we're going to onboard about twenty five hundred other sales uh, salespeople. Uh, then they're going to use Cashtrap as a sales you know thing to to convert a lot of their existing brick and mortars. They service about five hundred thousand brick and mortars all over the country. But they also do stuff for resorts and casinos and Disneyland and the NBA and like stadiums. So they're the ones broken a lot of these partnerships because a lot of their on-premise payment experiences that they do for all the merchants and service are legacy. So they have this really big existential problem to modernize the payment experience at a lot of their existing merchants before they jump ship to somewhere like Toaster Square. And that's yeah. where we come in. So that's been an extremely symbiotic uh, relationship. It took almost a year to build. You know, we've been building an, on this for almost a year. People thought we were crazy, but it's like turning a giant container ship in the middle of the Suez Canal, right? It's going to fucking take long as hell. But once it's going in the right direction, it's going to fucking move. So now, you know, we just somewhere the first 50. Now we're going to do it to the first 150 reps all the way to two, uh, 2,500. Uh, and, you know, that's, I think, creating that decentralized sales process through partnerships and, and, and uh, affiliate programs. That's been uh, the, the big strategy for us. And it just kind of, you know, helps us conduce this really great brand presence on social media that kind of keeps the inbound coming as well. So, you know, we'll do a lot of really cool stuff with, we're very blessed to have a lot of really cool investors that are, you know, celebrities like David Grubman in Miami has been one of the or most uh, a powerful uh, uh, um, um, just advisors and mentors and friends that, that you know, he's such a big uh, um player in the hospitality world he's constantly talking about cash trap so that's just giving us massive visibility in a lot of outbound we're you know he's introduced us to a lot of other investors like food god for example who's kim kardashian's best friend he's like one of the biggest foodie influencers in the world he just has a show that just dropped in discovery plus and now he's on team cash trap he's always advocating and moving we're doing a lot of really cool campaigns with them so pursuing that uh, has always uh, also been really powerful for us because we just kind of have the brand is very conducive you know to create a lot of really fun partnerships because we're not necessarily locked into one particular vertical we can do stuff with food guy we can do stuff with Dave. we can do stuff with a lot of foodies but also verticalize those things when we want to go into e-commerce when we want to go into digital assets you know we just lo uh, locked an investment deal with one of the biggest recording stars in the of the moment right now i can't talk about what it is but we'll be announcing that in the next few months that we're going to be where they're doing selling a lot something of really cool digitally activations. what was that where they're selling something digitally yeah, I mean, think about this now when you start putting the pieces of like, you know, stadiums and concerts like, you know, think about like how many times there's merch at your concert and like you're just not even going to fucking wait in line because like if you thought food trucks was bad, try buying a T-shirt at a Kanye West concert or like a big concert like that. What, what, you know, how, how much money is left on the table on, on large context, context right, where people say, like I'm not going to wait in line. Space. I don't get, I don't get how we still have lines when everyone has a phone in their pocket. It should be, That's what they I'm should saying. just, it, and especially with COVID, they should say now no more waiting in lines. It's unsafe for people. Go use the app and then we'll tell you when your food's ready or when your t-shirt's ready or whatever. And that's the thing, right? Like there's a lot of politics in the in the in the fintech space, right? Like there's a lot of legacy in the fintech space. And for us, you know, to some degree, partnership with the establishment has been really powerful for us to help them modernize their experience and keep their customers happy. And that's a really great way for us to create a giant step function of growth for ourselves while also being able to tell this uh, uh, this 
this story to the people that are just getting started and becoming the path of least resistance and the launch pad of entrepreneurship for people that are just about to launch. So we kind of have the best of our worlds and that's kind of where the vision for us is because then it allows us to point the finger to the people that are just getting started. Like, look, this could be you in five years and you can do it right now. You can go from zero to money in the bank in 15 minutes and you can be as Dave Grupman, right? Like you can be as big as this, you can do this. This is the app that you need to start right now as you're slanging tacos out your windows in your mom's house. But this is the same product that you can be here if you had 50,000 customers at your next venue, right? So I think that that's the interesting thing about how scalable the platform can be across different verticals and across different stages. Because at the end of the day, it's the same fucking use case, which is the interesting part, right? The idea of you know, the, not waiting in line to buy something. It doesn't matter if it's a taco or a hoodie or, a, you know, like, a, or a beer. I mean, like, it, it really is vertical agnostic, but it's been fragmented, you know, over time. And I think that that's what's really preventing mass adoption. So Cash Up's here to just say, look, anybody that has any idea of any business they want to sell, this is the app where you can go. There's be a chatbot that asks you, what are you trying to sell? How are, do you want to fulfill your orders? Whether it's be shipping or delivery or pickup or digital download. And then this will be the app that kind of connects all the pipes behind the scenes. So you don't I, have to worry about it. You just worry right, about I get it. You're basically saying, look, all those, all those amazing cash register apps from uh, Toast and the others, you could do away from that with them. People can just use their phones to order, their phones to pay, and... The merchant doesn't have to pay a fee for it. The customer pays a convenience fee. That's the answer. By the way, I did go to Mazorka on Instagram, as I told you before. Of course, as soon as I follow them, Instagram tells me about other places I can follow, including Zocalo. Zocalo, of course, also uses Cash Drop, and they also use you almost like a link tree where it's one page that you create that looks great with all their links to their website, hours of operation, and of course to buying. Um, the one thing that stands out for me is, first of all, the page looks great. Cash drop is on there in the URL and at the top and throughout. Do you think about maybe creating a URL that's, or allowing them to customize a URL? Does that matter anymore? Or are customers, businesses willing now to just use whatever tool and just like they don't need Linktree to give them their own URL, they don't need cash drop to anymore. What are you finding? It's symbiosis, right? Like the merchant these bells and whistles are nice, but it's because we're looking at it from the tech perspective. They, the business themselves just fucking care about making sure people can buy tacos and they can make as much uh, money They don't as care possible. that they they don't have a vanity URL. They don't care that they don't have their own .com. No, they just want – just make it easy for it, me to buy like, – Exactly. It's like, it'd be nice to have these things. Like these vanity things are nice to have, but at the end of the day, the product delivers so much value on what truly matters, which is making the purchase experience seamless that everything else, like they're okay. And that's the symbiosis, right? Like selfishly, can we create vanity URLs? Probably, but it's better marketing for us to be able to have mm. the cash drop URL. So I think that this is where the businesses really start wearing cash drop as a badge of honor because they're using the platform but they're also conveying a story right are you, saying, are you giving them a commission use, are you giving them a commission no, for promoting it no no absolutely not i like how you're it. disgusted that i would even ask here's why i asked though on yeah, yeah, yeah. on on uh, the zocalo website it says a link to their hours and so on but he also has a link to launch with cash drop earn money with an emoji yeah, of money oh, so, so that's so that's a different thing that is an affiliate 
uh, 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 landing page. So actually, ah, okay. we do have uh, deals. So we don't give marketing commissions for talking about cash shop. They just literally do because they love us because that's how much they love the product. There's, do and they make an affiliate commission? Virality. That's what makes their virality go through. But we we did launch an affiliate program with some of our merchants where okay. they can push these landing page links where w- businesses can sign up through the app through these landing pages. And when the new businesses make a transaction, the 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 merchant, the existing merchant, they'll let the new one makes makes a commission. So yes, uh, this is kind of like the same system that we used to scale through our uh, uh, influencer. Uh, uh, affiliates. So we're actually applying that to our existing merchants as well so that they tell each other about Cash Drop. Ah. But, you know, they just talk about us because we save them money because we make but it But is easy. it an ongoing affiliate commission? Or is it just yeah. a one-time every single, ongoing? Every, every single so if they get a new merchant to sign up, they get a new that? merchant to sign They get a new merchant to sign up and every single order generates revenue for them. Got it. Uh, it can be it can be a one time uh, or it can be ongoing. It depends, but yeah, it okay. depends on the on the on the. Um, we can kind of turn that on in different ways. Yes. Okay, so let me see if I can understand everything here. Number one. Yeah, yeah. The big thing that you've realized is what seems easy to us because we're developers or because we're techies or because we enjoy the process is a pain in the ass for other people and to look for those pains in the asses for other people number one number two when there's a problem instead of saying the world should be better than this you decided you know what i think the reason that they don't have tech i think the reason the world isn't better than this is because they it's just too hard for them and my job is going to be to make it easier and let me ask you this how did you you're not in the food service business when people were signing up for shopify they weren't in the food truck business trying to create a website how did you piece that together um growing up in milwaukee right so my family immigrated from mexico to milwaukee when i was 13 yep. and i grew up there uh and you know milwaukee's a very service industry heavy town so i was a tech nerd writing code, but a lot of my friends were bartenders and servers and, you know, that worked in restaurants. And you just always saw this. Like, they, I was a tech nerd with apps and everybody hated apps in Milwaukee. Mm. They fucking hated technology, right? And it's easy to dismiss them. I was like, oh, you guys lived 20 years in the past. But, you know, I'm very inquisitive by nature and I was trying to understand why. And you kind of realize it's like it's not a technology problem. It's almost like it was an economic problem, right? Because it's it's difficult on purpose that they can charge them. It's almost like the whole fucking thing with I think people look at technology like we look at McDonald's ice cream machines. They're always broken because they that's you pay to fix them. And that's why they don't have an incentive to make them better because, you know, you're going to have to pay a technician every two weeks to come and fix your fucking ice cream machine with something that's something it's something, frankly, that's not that difficult to do. Right. Like I think technology is kind of becoming a little bit like the broken ice cream machine for these restaurant owners and mm. that they just fucking hate us. Honestly, they, they they hate it. And when you ask why and you realize like, oh, this is actually something that shouldn't be that difficult. How do I put myself out of business to provide a better merchant experience? I mean, the tables turn and people actually fucking like it. And guess what? When they like it, they advocate about your product. They tell their friends, they tell everybody. And then the inbound is there and you don't have to sell. You just tell the story and focus on providing the right customer experience 
And, you know, maybe sometimes it requires for you to be outsider of these industries to truly understand the problems, right, that these industries have and then just be able to be, you know, a different perspective on fixing the fixing it. So I don't know. It's a little bit of luxus circumstance, but I think also like just growing up around so many people that worked in that industry helped with the perspective. All right. The website, the website is cashdrop.biz. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first one, you need email marketing that will scale with your business, but the price will not suddenly jump up. It's all the marketing automation features that you didn't even know you needed, but wait till you see how powerful they are. You should go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. And when you need a website, quick, easy, and inexpensive, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Ruben, thanks so much for being on here. Thank you for the time. Right on.